When you drive north from Walnut Creek toward Martinez on Route 680, just before you get to the bridge, you see the ponds of the Waterbird Regional Preserve on your right. If you get off at Marina Vista Avenue, turn right away from downtown Martinez, and then turn right again on Waterfront Road and follow it past the Waterbird Preserve and up and over the hill behind it, you come to the estuary of Walnut Creek. That's the stream, not the town. Channelized in the 60s, hemmed in by industry and silted up, the area where Walnut Creek meets Sassoon Bay is getting a new life as a natural area, home to endangered species and a key buffer against sea level rise. It's the Lower Walnut Creek Restoration Project. Welcome to Linksploration Bay Area. Climate change. We look at it up, down, and sideways. We follow the links between climate change and so many other issues, and all of it with a local twist. Okay, we're here with Paul Detchens from the Contra Costa. Paul, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Paul Detchens, Contra Costa County Flood Control and Water Conservation District. And welcome to Pacheco Marsh, part of the Lower Walnut Creek Restoration Project. Well, welcome to our podcast. And you are the manager of this project, are you not? I am. I'm the project manager and have been since 2003. Okay, could you tell us why we're doing this? The Lower Walnut Creek Restoration, which in this location is also called Pacheco Creek Restoration, has an interesting story. It all goes back to the 1960s, or even earlier than that. After World War II, Contra Costa County had intense amount of urbanization. We had a lot of people moving in after the war. And my agency, the Contra Costa County Flood Control and Water Conservation District, was formed in 1951, really to help with those flooding problems. So we're out here talking on a Monday morning in January, and we're here at the mouth or at the very base of the Walnut Creek watershed, and Walnut Creek is the largest creek in Contra Costa County. In the 1960s, we partnered with the federal government. In this case, it was the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and they channelized the creek. They made it wider and a little deeper. They built levees on both sides, and that system extends almost up to Rudgear Road in uh, the Alamo uh, Walnut Creek border. I thought it was underground downtown. And it does go underground downtown. Under Liberty Bell Plaza, that's where San Ramon and Las Trampas Creek come together, and that's the actual formation of Walnut Creek right there. Of the 22 miles that the Corps of Engineers system is, about four miles, this lowest reach, is really flat. And soon after the Corps built the system, it filled in with sediment. And the deal that we make as a local flood control district with the federal government is pretty much the federal government pays for most of it, the state pays for a little bit, and we pay for a little bit. But in exchange for that, we agree that we would maintain the system in perpetuity to the Corps of Engineers standards. In this lowest reach, it filled in with sediment very rapidly, and then it stopped filling in with sediment. It's like if you dig a hole in the creek, it's going to fill in, and then it's not going to fill in much more. And so the problem is we had sediment in the channel here, 
And the Corps of Engineers said, hey, remember this agreement you signed? You better get all that sediment out. We actually worked collaboratively with the Corps for almost a decade, from 2003 to 2013 or so, to try to come up with a way with the Corps to manage this differently, manage it more sustainably, not only for the environment, but also for our limited funds. And ultimately, in 2014, we came to the decision that there really wasn't a collaborative project with the Corps that would work in a sustainable manner. So what we did is we went back to Congress. We did something called a selective deauthorization. And what that meant is that of the 22-mile system, 18 miles is well-behaved, and it can stay in the Corps system. But this lowest four miles never quite worked right. So we said, thank you for that, Corps. Congress now tells us, tells us that the creek is 100% ours, and we can do what we want with it, and we don't need to get your permission. And so that was really the uh, genesis of what we call our Lower Walnut Creek Restoration Project. And it really is a multi-benefit project that allows us to set back levees and let flood flows occupy areas that have long since been diked off. We can design wetlands like this that help in the recovery of several rare and endangered species. We can provide the opportunity or the foundation for public access in partnership with groups like East Regional Park District and a great partner, the John Muir Land Trust. And we can build this in a way that is resilient to sea level rise and other pressures to make sure that these benefits persist not only now and next year, but to mid-century and beyond. So early on in the core planning process, this parcel, this 122-acre Pacheco Marsh, it was originally designated for industrial development, and it had been diked and drained and some industrial use at the, at the downstream end. This big road was put through the middle of it. Central Sand has a sewer outfall pipe that runs down the middle of it. So even though it was Pacheco Marsh, it really wasn't looking much like a marsh. Well, there was a plan for 34 tilt-up concrete warehouse buildings to support the neighboring refineries. Oh and that never got much traction, thankfully. There was not a lot of habitat here, but there still was enough that it would be difficult to build something like that. Long story short, the developer went out of business, and we, in partnership with the John Muir Land Trust, got a grant and purchased this 122 acres for the back taxes. And lest you think it was $5,000, it was still $617,000. But that's a steal for uh, 122 acres of land like this. And we knew that it would have an important part in whatever restoration project we would have just because of its location. We're strategically right at the mouth of Walnut Creek, which is the largest creek in the watershed. And it's on the south shore of Sassoon Bay. And so really being adjacent to Walnut Creek, anything that we would work doing a restoration project there would logically include this parcel. And it became clear as our planning went on, we could do a lot of work on this parcel and avoid doing invasive work in the creek itself. And so by working with these two adjacent parcels, Pacheco Creek here and Walnut Creek Channel just over there, we're able to come up with a plan that really has uh, fantastic multiple benefits. Are the creeks going to continue to have banks and flow, or are you, is that going to go? Well, the creeks are going to continue to flow as they did with this atmospheric river that comes in. But instead of a levee, and it's strange, this wasn't even really a core-engineered levee. It was more like a berm, because remember when the core dredged out the channel? They pumped all those dredge spoils onto this marsh, let it drain, and let the dirt settle here, and then pump the water back in the creek. So it wasn't even really a flood protection levee, but it served somewhat as that purpose to keep water in the creek. So we have set back the levee in many locations, and in the most downstream 
about a half mile, we physically remove that levee. And that allows the high flows, flood flows like what we had for these atmospheric rivers, to really spread out and come onto these marshlands where it used to flow, but hadn't since the 1960s. Give us the overview. So we're here in the center of the Pacheco Marsh, which is otherwise known as the North Reach of the Lower Walnut Creek Restoration Project. As you can see this way, we've got a beautiful view of Mount Diablo peeking out among the fog to the south. And if we go around clockwise, we've got the Acme Landfill. That's the Martinez Refinery on the other side of 680. These tanks are from an industry that supports the refineries as well. It's not a third refinery. And then behind the fence there, you can see that there's a bunch of cars and a little bit of dust. That's the Copart Yard. So if your car ever gets totaled, that's probably where it'll end up. And then some guy will buy it, fix it up, and sell it back to you off of Craigslist. And if we go around this direction, uh, you can see the Martinez-Benicia Bridge, including the railroad bridge. And then looking more towards the north, that's where we'll head later. That is the, the shoreline of Sassoon Bay. And in the distance, you see those are the hills in Solano County, and that's Benicia on the other side. Turning around a little bit more, this is the wharf that supports the Marathon Refinery. And the Marathon Refinery is our neighbor all along the east side of the project. And they're kind of a partner with the project? Marathon has been a great supporter of the project. And when we get down to the north end, we can talk about the 18-acre parcel that they donated to the land trust that helped facilitate making a really good project into a great project. Do you have a relationship with the bird sanctuary that we pass on the way over? So what you're referring to is the McNabney Marsh, otherwise known as Waterbird Regional Preserve, which is run by East Bay Regional Park District. Our site is completely independent of that, and we actually are a little different. McNabney Marsh is a heavily managed, partially tidal wetlands, and that it has a lot of standing water that attracts a lot of shorebirds and a lot of waterfowl as well. And so that is uh, managed. The tides are regulated by tide gates that are manually opened and closed. Here, we have no such regulation. If the tides are high, the water's high in our site. If the tides are low, it's low on our site. And so where Waterbird Regional Preserve is primarily focused on shorebirds and waterbirds, here we have a broader focus, I guess, for a much broader range of different habitat types. While theirs are primarily open water with a little bit of a fringe, we have open water here as well, but we also have tidal wetlands, pickleweed marsh, seasonal marsh, different type of lowland and upland grasslands, rural areas as well. And so we provide a different type of matrix of habitat. And so we're anticipating that we'd be attracting a different type of species than our neighbor down the road. Okay, tell, tell us about all these milk cartons. So once we did the grading of our project, the next part was the revegetation. So we have a comprehensive vegetation management program that is part of our implementation of the restoration project here. Not only is it custom-grown plants, we have about 31,000 of them that we've planted. Each one receives its own drip emitter, irrigation for up to three years as necessary, and a protective milk carton. People always ask, where did you get the milk cartons from? My understanding is that they were misprints, and uh, so they came a flat on a pallet, and our contractor uh, saved them from going to the landfill, and they're reused as browse protection. And uh, we do get quite a few uh, jackrabbits and other uh, critters out here that would feast on the plants, so this, these milk cartons give them a, give them a fighting chance.
Each one has its own drip. That was a huge project. It was. You can see that this irrigation pipeline that runs along the side of the road here, this is all temporary, and this is just to give the plants established and to help them through the hot summers. And then after three years, there's no permanent irrigation out here. This is just to get them a, a fighting start, and then they'll fend for themselves. We have 19 different plants that we included in our pallet for the native plants that we installed here today. You can see here at the top of Bank, which is right near the access road, are some of the toyon. And those are ones that are not really salt tolerant and they don't really like to get too wet. So that's why of those 19 different types, there's a different mixture really on every ecotone as you go up and down this slope. And so near the top of the slope, that's where you find plants like the toyon. As you go down the slope, the plants um, are more wetland friendly and even ones that like to be uh, partially inundated. We're huffing and puffing a little bit because we're actually walking and talking. Uh -huh. <laughs> but we're also looking at all the different plants that we have. Like I said, we have 19 different type of plants that we had custom grown for the project. That's what the 31,000 milk cartons are out here. We just passed some toyon and some elderberry. We passed some uh, wild rose. Then we talked about some aster. And so we actually have some existing stands of locally rare Sassoon marsh aster that's on site. So we were able to harvest some of those seeds, propagate them, and now we're expanding that population as part of the mix of plants we have here. Are those coyote brush? Or? Yes, we are planting some baccarus as well, otherwise known as coyote brush. And it's a good transition species for the more upland grassland areas. And there's some examples of ones that are at full size. So we didn't plant those, but those are some that were here before the project. Can you talk about the different habitats that we have here? Sure. So we have a number of different habitat types that we've created here at Pacheco Marsh. It's really a series of connected ecotones that are basically just areas that are at different elevations. And that elevation and the amount of water that it sees dictates what type of plant communities are there. We're standing right now on a gravel road, which is like the least amount of habitat possible. But as you look down the slopes coming down from this road, these are more upland areas or rural areas. And the plant communities that would thrive there are more ones that don't like to get their, their, their roots wet. And as you move farther down, we end up into seasonal marsh. We have some lowland grassland areas. We have some tidal pickleweed marsh. And we have some seasonal ponds that are out here. It kind of looks the same as the tidal channels, but those are actually independent. Those are actually um, not connected to the tidal channels. And so they have primarily freshwater habitat. And also they'll dry up in the summer where the tidal channels will continue to have twice daily tides. So the tidal have... channels are to, to bring in the tides. Is that to prevent them from flooding the freshwater ponds? No, no. The freshwater ponds do their own thing. They're at a different elevation, and they're fed primarily by rain. They're, they're very full now that we've had our series of atmospheric rivers here in early January. But the tidal channels really are to create a type of habitat or to recreate a type of habitat that used to be very common around San Francisco Bay. And about 80 to 85% of that habitat has been basically drained or built on or filled in because everyone wants to live and, and work and be near the bay, right? And so our previous generations did not treat wetlands to the kind of value that we do now. The tidal wetlands that we've created here 
are really an effort to recreate some of those lost wetlands around the bay, and specifically in this part along the south shore of Sassoon Bay. So I know when they restored Mountain Lake in San Francisco, they spent a lot of time doing studies about what used to live there before it was disturbed. Did you do any of that here? We did. We actually worked with the San Francisco Estuary Institute on something called a historical ecology analysis. And what we determined from that research was that this area is actually that we're standing near the shore of Sassoon Bay. If we go back 200 years, we would have had to use waders because we would have been in the bay itself. And so the alignment of the creek is actually very different historically than it is now. The neighbors are obviously very different than it was back then. And then because of the sediment loading that was naturally coming out of this watershed, this shoreline has actually been pushed out towards the bay by about 100 yards. In this fringe that we're standing on now, firm ground, it used to be open water. The historical ecology didn't just tell us about what the shoreline looked like. It really looked at the types of habitats that were all throughout this area. While it's a good guide for what has thrived and what possibly could thrive again, we want to make sure we don't just look at it blindly and say, oh, this used to be tidal marsh, we must make it tidal marsh. In order to be a successful tidal marsh, you have to have all the other things that used to be present in order for it to thrive. And so we look at it as a recommendation, but not a requirement, and try to come up with the kind of plant palette the type of habitat and the type of critters out here that can recreate what could be a healthy and sustainable habitat that's closely aligned with what used to be out here, if not exactly the same. Do you have frogs? Not so much because it's primarily salty. The frogs that we have around here, like a California red-legged frog and such, are much more prevalent farther up in the watershed. Gotcha. All right. Tell me about the rare and endangered species we're going to help here. So one of the fundamental objectives of our project was to create habitat for a number of rare and endangered species. And we found that very challenging to do because it's kind of like being a landlord for tenants that don't like noise and you're remodeling their apartment without them moving out. Nonetheless, we have a good success rate and we're looking forward to seeing increasing numbers of these type of species in the future. And two of the main species are the Ridgeways rail, used to be called the California clapper rail, and then a black rail. And those are ground-nesting birds that are actually present on site. We had a number of nesting black rail pairs that were directly adjacent to our project. And so we had certain areas when we were building that we couldn't actually start work until September 1st to allow them to complete their clutch and fledge. Have you seen the rails? They are so elusive that I've been the project manager for 20 years, and I know where they are. I have heard their call, but I've and never actually seen And you still it. can't see them. I know. I they wish are. I, as a very casual birder, I have never seen one either. So, so what I'm told is that they are really kind of a destination species, and folks will hopefully, once it's open to the public, um, enjoy coming out and seeing the rails, or perhaps even hearing the rails. Seeing them might be a little challenging because they are so reclusive. Probably the other keystone species that we have out here is the salt marsh harvest mouse. Salt marsh harvest mouse is a very cute little mouse. I would argue that it's the cutest mammal in the hemisphere. But we have a number of populations of salt marsh harvest mouse that are actually present on site. So we did what's called a pre-project census where we set out a number of bait traps, baited them with peanut butter because... 
mice like peanut butter. So we did that overnight for two different nights, and there was a healthy debate among the team of biologists what we would use to make sure that we weren't counting the same mice over and over, and we settled on a black Sharpie. And so the ones with the stripe on their back is the ones that have been captured, investigated. We check whether they're pregnant, male or female. And then we do a snippet of hair, and we would send that off to a genetics lab at UC Davis. And they would do a definitive DNA test to establish whether they were the more common Western harvest mouse or the more endangered salty. And so we found that we do have a robust population of salt marsh harvest mouse. And so that was very challenging for us to build all these new tidal channels in really poor quality, but occupied pickleweed marsh. (laughs) And we would try to tell the mice that, hey, hang in there. The noise will be over soon. The habitat will be much better. I don't know if they understood it, but we tried to be good landlords to them. And then what we will do is through this 10-year monitoring period that we're in, we will do an additional census at year five, and we will ensure that our salt marsh harvest mouse numbers are at least the same as pre-project and hopefully greater because we've created more of that habitat. Are there fish? There's a number of fish here. Now, we are kind of at the intersection of a major creek and certainly Sassoon Bay. And so the first thing people think of is, well, where are the Salmonids? Can I come and see some steelhead? Where's the Chinook? And, well, the truth of it is, is that lower Walnut Creek and Walnut Creek in general, probably because of its urbanization, has too much sediment and also is too warm generally to be a rearing stream for Chinook or really any Salmonids. That said... We do get some stragglers because during times of drought, they release hatchery fish out in San Pablo Bay and sometimes here in Sassoon Bay. And then three years later, they come back, say this smells like home, and then make a right turn and come up the creek. But we haven't found any evidence that they're actually creating reds or fry in the creek. That's really beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here for this type of restoration. That said, we have created good habitat for out-migrating smolts. They can come in, spend a little time, eat some other stuff around here, maybe get a little extra energy before they go out through the Golden Gate and continue on their grand adventure. So while we're not primarily a fisheries project, we did do our work with great thought as to how to provide benefit to the fisheries resources that are reasonably here. And there's other creeks in Contra Costa County, primarily Wildcat and Pinole, and a little bit of marsh that are better streams for salmonid restoration. But the birds need the fish to eat, so presumably you have some fish. There's plenty of fish in here, mainly native fish that would come in that keep the osprey on on its nest over there busy. It's kind of fun to watch what's going on here on Sassoon Bay, and we really have a front row shoreline seat, if you will. Because we're surrounded by a bunch of industrial neighbors, I mean, we are between uh, an oil refinery and a uh, another oil fuel depot. You might think that it's noisy and dusty and dirty and smoky, but really it's pretty quiet out here and pretty peaceful. And, and we've seen a tremendous amount of bird life out here today. Now, which one is that? Is that a kite? That's a kite. That's so. That's a kite. You could tell because it's black and white. Mm-hmm. And it's the way it kind of hovers as well. So it's hunting for something. Finally just landed over there. Probably feasting on the endangered salt marsh harvest mouse. Um, If we're lucky, we'll hear the sea lions as well. So we're listening to traffic 
and the generator of the ship, but in the distance you can hear the sea lions who are out on the pier. <laughs> and that's really kind of the beauty of Pacheco Marsh, is that despite some of the preconceptions on the neighborhood that we might be in, we really do have a lot of solitude and a lot of wilderness and a lot of wildlife that's out here. Let me ask you, when is the public going to be able to be here? We are partners with the John Muir Land Trust, and the Flood Control District took the lead in the first phase of the project, which was doing all the grading and the planting for the restoration project. Now, the next phase of the project is the public access. The John Muir Land Trust hoped to start construction once the bird nesting season is over, so probably fall of 2023. And I'm hopeful that can be open to the public maybe in spring of 2024. Of what amenities will you have for the public? We've designed this project in partnership with the Land Trust to make sure that all the grading and all the restoration features are compatible with the public access facilities that they want to put in. Most importantly, there'll be a staging area with a restroom. There'll be an environmental education center. There'll be about 3.6 miles of trails that loop the site a number of benches and bird watching areas, a small outdoor classroom. It'll be a, a fantastic amenity, and I look forward to greeting people out here once it's open to the public. Is this going to be part of the East Bay Regional Parks, or who's going to administer it? This is going to be administered by the John Muir Land Trust as one of their holdings. They are very experienced land trust. It's been around for over 25 years, and they have a number of holdings throughout the East Bay, mostly centered around the Franklin Hills in the Martinez area. And so this is a natural extension, although it's their first parcel that's along the shoreline. So it's something a little different, and I'm sure they share my excitement of the site as well. I'm sure they do. Well, thank you, Paul. This has been an amazing visit. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I'm so happy you had a chance to come out, and we were able to dodge the various atmospheric rivers and find this nice pause in between to walk the site, enjoy a little sunshine, and tour this amazing site. Thanks for coming along. Well, thank you very much for your time. Check out the show notes on our website for photos and maps of the project. The Exploration Bay Area is an independent podcast. Find, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is linksploration.com, where you can listen to our archives, and there's also show notes, photos, and links to our guests. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at linksploration at gmail.com, and that's spelled L-I-N-K-S-P-L-O-R-A-T-I-O-N. Look for us on social media, also on Patreon. We are not in this to make money, but we do welcome donations to help with the cost of keeping the podcast on the air. We're Jean, Sharon, and Christy signing off until next time. Thanks for listening.